Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Chapter 6. And as we begin this morning, I want to begin with a trivia question. And here's the question. What is the longest war in human history? The longest war in human history. Now, I have the answer, but I'm not sure if you do, but I'll give it to you. It's called the Reconquista, or Spanish for the Reconquest. You want to know how long it lasted? 774 years. These were military campaigns that were waged by Spain and Portugal against the Moors, against the Arabs living in North Africa, parts of the Mediterranean, and the Middle East. And it officially started in 718 A.D. with the Battle of Covadonga, in which the Portuguese armies achieved victory over the forces of the Arab Caliphate. And the war finally ended in 1492 with the fall of the Nasrid kingdom of Granada, which surrendered to the Spanish king Ferdinand II. Now, can you imagine a war lasting 774 years? Now, as Americans, we've had relatively short wars compared to other nations in history. Let me just kind of give you some examples here. The Revolutionary War lasted eight years and four months. The Civil War lasted three years and 11 months. World War I lasted four years and three months. World War II lasted six years and one day. The Gulf War in 1990 lasted six months. But 774 years? Now, why do I bring up the longest war in history? What does warfare and long, stretched-out wars have to do with anything this morning? Well, it will make sense as we look at our passage this morning. So Paul is bringing this letter to a close. And he started the letter by addressing false teachers, and he ends the letter by addressing false teachers. And as we looked at last week, what does false doctrine do? False doctrine perverts our minds and leads us to have restless hearts. On the contrary, sound doctrine renews our minds and leads to contented hearts. So we want to have contented hearts in Christ. And so we know that the Christian life is a lifelong struggle. It's a spiritual battle. And I've said this many times, it's a spiritual battle against the unholy trinity. What's the unholy trinity? The world, the flesh, and the devil. It's an ongoing warfare with these three insidious enemies. And so until Jesus returns, we will struggle with sin will be influenced by the seductions of this world system. We will be tempted by the devil. And as such, because it's such a warfare, and we don't know when Christ is going to come back, it's going to require endurance. It's going to require perseverance. This calls for us not to grow weary and give up. Now, I don't want you to raise your hand this morning, but how often 
do we get discouraged in the Christian life? Or we get sidetracked in the Christian life? Or or we just want to give up because this world system and the devil and our own flesh is just too much to handle. And it comes at us and we just don't know if we can continue keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. So this brings up a very important question. How do we fight the good fight of faith? How do you fight the war? How do you fight the battle? What does Timothy as a young pastor in this pagan city of Ephesus need to hear? What does he need to know? What will encourage him? What will motivate him to persevere as he pastors this church, as he lives in this pagan city, as he deals with false teachers, as he deals with potential pressures and divisions in the church? What does he need to hear as a young pastor? And by extension, what do we need to hear to motivate and encourage us to persevere in this ongoing, never-ending battle and struggle? Well, this passage gives us the answer, and here's the answer for this morning. It's simply this. The sovereign majesty of God is a solid encouragement to stand firm until Jesus comes back. The sovereign majesty of God, who He is, His power, is a solid encouragement for us to stand firm until Jesus comes back, and that's exactly what Paul does here as he brings this letter to a close. Now, we're not finishing 1 Timothy today. We're getting close to the end, but let's read together chapter 6, starting in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Timothy is the man of God. And that's an expression that was used in the Old Testament to speak of the prophets and the priests, the men that God called. And by extension, Timothy's the called man of God. He's the pastor. He's the man of God. And he's to flee or he's to have a life that's to be radically different than these false teachers that we looked at last week. And so this entire passage of Scripture is framed by two things. The second coming of Christ and the absolute sovereignty of God. And what Paul does is Paul gives Timothy five imperatives or five commands. Five commands and how we can stand firm, fight the good fight till the end, until Jesus comes back. So again, how can we stand firm until 
Jesus comes back. Well, let's explore these five commands. And they're right here in front of us in the Scriptures. The first is this, flee. For you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee these things. Well, what are these things? The things we talked about last week. Flee the corruption of false teaching. Now, there's one thing that you need to understand about the grammar in this text that you may not get from your English translations. This is in the present tense. And as a present tense verb, this means to continually, ongoingly, if that's a word, as a lifestyle, continually flee, run from, get rid of these things. Now, we need to understand something about gospel repentance and spiritual transformation. You can't just say no and leave it at that. Some of you grew up in the 80s. I grew up in the 80s when Ronald Reagan was president and his wife, Nancy Reagan, had that campaign for the war on drugs. And you guys remember the statement? What was the saying back in the 80s? Just say no. Just say no to drugs. This, if, if, the, if the president's wife, the first lady, says say no to drugs, that's going to end drugs on the street, right? Just say no. When I was a youth pastor, the big thing was True Love Waits campaigns, the, the purity things where we told teenagers, just say no. So let me ask you a question. As a result of just say no to drugs and just say no to premarital sex, in the past, let's just say two decades, has there been a decrease in drug use and a decrease in, in, in teenage sex? Because we've had a just say no campaign. Okay, if I told children, hey children, don't touch this microphone, whatever you do, don't touch it. What's going to happen? Every single one of these children are going to want to come up here and touch the microphone, right? You, you, you can't resist. Just say no. See, here's the problem. The human heart is not neutral. The human heart's always going to grab on to something. So if you tell a Christian or you tell somebody, just say no, they may say no to one sin, but then another sin's going to come and attack them. You see, you need something greater than just say no. You need to have a greater vision of who Jesus is. You need to have that desire expelled or pushed out by a greater desire. And so there's two parts to this, okay? There's the negative and the positive. Yes, just say no, flee. Flee the sin. Run away from the sin. Just say no to sin. But that's not, that's not, that's halfway, your heart is never in neutral. Your heart's not a vacuum. If you just say no, something's going to come and take its place. That's why, secondly, Paul has the positive. So, number one, flee, run, get rid of the sin. Yes, but here's the second thing he says. Pursue. Pursue the blessings of godly virtues. So, yes, flee. Continually run away. But at the same time, as you run away, you need to also positively pursue, run after these godly virtues. Again, this pursue is in the present tense. Keep on chasing after. Keep on pursuing an ongoing lifestyle. And this word pursue means to do it with urgency, to do it with diligence. Yes, we must flee sin, but that's not enough. We must replace sin with a greater desire, namely 
the glory of Christ. 2 Timothy 2.2 says this. I'm sorry, 2.22. So flee, there it is again, youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee and pursue. They're both there. You say no, but that's not enough. You've got to pursue. You've got to run after. You've got to replace that sin with something greater. And so Paul lists six virtues here that we are to pursue. Okay, what are these virtues? Well, the first thing he says here is righteousness. Pursue righteousness means right conduct, living rightly according to God's standard. Philippians 1, 9-11 says, And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Filled with the fruit of righteousness, living righteously for the glory of God. So that's the first thing we're to pursue is to pursue righteousness. Okay, number two is godliness. A life that imitates God. Now, we've already seen this show up in 1 Timothy. I mean, 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. And just go back up a few verses. Go back up to verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. We looked at that last week. Godliness. So righteousness, godliness. Third, faith. This is a wholehearted trust in Jesus, resting in Christ, receiving Christ, trusting Jesus. Fourth is love. One of the chief of the Christian virtues, a love for God and a love for others. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. Fifth, he says there, steadfastness. The ability to endure under pressure, to face the struggle against sin. Extreme patience. James 1, 2 through 3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The reason you go through trials is so God can increase that and grow that steadfastness, that patience. And then number six is gentleness. Not being harsh, not being bitter. Gentleness does not mean that you're a doormat or that you're weak. Actually, the word gentleness in the Bible means power under control. You're empathetic, you're understanding, but it's under control. You can speak the truth in love and be gentle. So, so, so what are we supposed to be doing here? Ephesians 4, 1 through 2. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling in which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So gospel repentance, spiritual transformation, the way that the human heart is built requires both a fleeing, negative, say no, but at the same time you can't just say no because your heart's not neutral. Something's going to come and fill it. You've got to therefore pursue or turn toward or, or replace it with these godly virtues that focus on Christ. So that's why Paul says, number one, flee, run from these sinful things 
But as you're running from them, turn and pursue, chase after these godly things in your life. So that's the first and second. And again, these are commands in the present tense. Keep on fleeing. Keep on pursuing. And here's the third. You see it in verse 12. Fight the never-ending spiritual battle. Fight the good fight of the faith. Again, it's in the present tense. Keep on fighting the fight. It's never going to end. The, the Greek word there, if I say the Greek word, you'll understand where we get our English word from. Let me, let me give, just give you, I don't often give you the Greek, but you'll, you'll hear it, your English. Agonizomai. Agonize. That's where we get the word agonize from. To struggle. It was often used of boxing, athletic imagery, running, wrestling. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's a never-ending battle. The world, the flesh, and the devil are always going to be there, and it's going to be an ongoing battle, and you need perseverance. It can be grueling at times. It can be deflating at times, and it requires stamina. And so the only power we have to fight the good fight comes from the Lord, comes from His grace. And remember, the good fight of faith all throughout 1 Timothy involves doctrine, sound doctrine, fighting the good fight of the faith. Notice what Paul says, the faith. The faith once and for all delivered to the saints. The truth, fighting for truth, being valiant for truth. The sound words of our Lord Jesus that we saw back up in verse 3 of chapter 6. So flee the evils of sin and false teaching. Pursue these godly blessings, these godly virtues. Fight the good fight of faith. Ongoing, never-ending, always happening. Okay, what's the fourth? Hold on tight to eternal life in Christ. Now, this is where I got stuck this week in sermon prep because I'm not going to bore you with all the, the Greek text, but I, I got to this point, point. I'm like, what is Paul saying here? Hold on to eternal life to which you were called. Hold on to eternal life. That makes it sound like it's kind of workspace, right? Like I better hold on to eternal life because if I don't hold on, I might lose it. That's not what Paul's saying. So let's ask the question, what is eternal life? Well, Jesus answers it for us in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So eternal life is to know Jesus, to know God through Jesus. Now, let's think about salvation for a moment. Is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Yes, When God saved you, notice what it says there about hold on to the eternal life in which you were called. Okay, in your initial salvation, you were effectually called to Jesus. The Holy Spirit did a work of grace in your heart. He took you from spiritual death, gave you spiritual life. It was an irresistible, effectual call where God saved you. He brought you to himself. You are eternally secure in the grip of your Savior. Jesus took a hold of you when he saved you, and he'll never let you go. 
So, we are to hold on to eternal life. That means to hold tightly, to, to hold on firmly. So what does this mean? Well, R.C. Sproul gives a great analogy. It's kind of like a child walking by a busy street holding his dad's hand. So picture a dad and a, and a son or a dad and a daughter, and they're walking by this busy street. And the dad says to the son, whatever you do, don't let go of my hand. Now, what's the son going to do? He's going to grab. What's the dad going to do? Is the dad going to let go? No, all the time the dad knows he's not letting go, but the son still needs to hold on. And R.C. Sproul says it's kind of like that. God will never let you go. He's got you in his grip. He's going to protect you. But there's still the human responsibility that we've got to kind of hold on tight. And as we hold on tight, we know God's going to hold on tight and he's never going to let us go. So our salvation is not dependent on how tight we hold on to because God's going to hold on to us. But what it means is this, is that there is somewhat of a human responsibility to, to, to grab on to Jesus, to hold on tight. Now, yes, we know he's going to hold us and he's never going to let us go, but, but we just need to stay tight with Jesus. And we're called. Notice he says, to this you were called. John Calvin says this, Nothing ought to motivate us with greater courage, courage, than to know that we've been called by God. We can conclude from this that our obedience, which God's hand of grace empowers us to do, will not be fruitless. Nothing you do will be fruitless because God has called you God is holding you, and as you hold on to Him, He will produce this grace and this fruit and these good works in your life. So, flee, pursue, fight, and hold on. And then Paul says, remember, Timothy, when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses? Now, what was that good confession? There's a lot of debate about this. I'll tell you my personal opinion. I think it's at Timothy's baptism, when he was baptized. What do you do when you're baptized in the waters up here? You make the confession. You, you, you profess your faith in Christ. And so Paul is reminding Timothy at that time when he was baptized that he made the confession in front of the church family that he truly was a believer. And so he's to continue to make that good confession. He knows that that confession was originally made at his baptism, but he's to continue to confess Christ. And so we need to constantly remind ourselves of the good confession. So what happens every Sunday when we come to church? You may not intuitively know this, but what happens every Sunday? When we sing, when we pray, when we read Scripture, when we hear the sermon, we are making the good confession every week. We're making the good confession. We are confessing as a body. We believe in Jesus. We believe the Bible. We believe these truths. We're singing them. We're, we're hearing them. When you have your daily quiet time or private devotion, it's good to constantly remind yourself of that good confession. It anchors you as you spend time daily reminding yourselves of the good confession. And Jesus made the good confession. Notice what Paul says. In verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Well, when did, what did Jesus say before Pontius Pilate? Let's go back and read Luke 23, 1 through 5. 
Then the whole company of them arose and brought them before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, That would be Jesus, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. If you remember back when we did the Gospel of Luke, three times Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. Jesus made the good confession, yes, I am the king of the Jews. And what happened from his good confession? He got crucified. Jesus made the good confession in the face of extreme persecution. And we, as the followers of Christ, need to continue to make the good confession of faith in the midst of extreme pressure. What's the temptation when things get tough? To be quiet, to hide, to back down. Instead, we should be bold and continue to make the good confession of faith like Jesus did, even in the midst of extreme pressure. We model, we emulate our Savior. So four commands. Number one, flee. Number two, pursue. Number three, fight. Number four, hold on, and here's the fifth. And the fifth is really a summary of the entire book of, of, of 1 Timothy of what Paul is telling Timothy to do. Obey God's word with integrity. Now, where do we get this, obey God's word with integrity? Verse 14, to keep, this is the fifth, the fifth command, to keep the commandment, unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep the commandment. Diligently keep the commandment. Well, what's the commandment? I take it to mean the entire book of 1 Timothy and everything he's taught up to this point. God's word, ultimately. And to keep it with integrity, because what does Paul say there? Keep it unstained and free from reproach. Follow God's word, keep God's word, obey God's word with integrity blameless. This was read earlier by Russell when he did our time of confession from 2 Peter 3, 13-14. But according to his promise, we are waiting. What are we waiting for? The new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay, has a new heavens and a new earth come yet? No, we're waiting for it. So as we're waiting for it, what should we be doing? Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and at peace. So let's ask the question, how long, how long is Timothy supposed to endure, fight the fight, battle sin, live the Christian life? How long is he supposed to do it? Well, Paul gives us the answer right there in the text. What's the answer? Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or as Peter would say, until the new heavens and the new earth in which Jesus will inaugurate at his second coming. So how long should we fight this fight? Until Jesus comes back. Does anybody know when he's going to come back? Not exactly. But the word there is appearing. At the appearing. That's where we get our English word epiphany. A glorious, dazzling, appearing 
of Jesus in the clouds at his second coming. It means Jesus will radiate with glory for all to see when he comes back. Titus 2.13, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So until that time, what's Timothy supposed to do? We'll go back and read chapter 4, verse 16 for me with just a moment. Chapter 4, verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in these, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Watch your doctrine. Watch your life. Fight the good fight. Flee sin. Pursue righteousness. Fight the good fight. Hold on to the gospel. Make the good confession. Keep on obeying until Jesus comes back. And he will come back at what? The proper time. The appointed time. On God's calendar, there's a sovereign time set for when Jesus comes back. And all we are told to do is to watch and be ready for that day to be ready for the return, to live in light of the return, to persevere in this battle. So Paul gives five commands to persevere, to hold fast, to continually fight the battle. And we need to understand these are commands. We are to obey them. But let me just say this, the greatest motivation, the greatest encouragement to obey comes from something greater than just merely obedience. What does Paul do here? Because our obedience is often lackluster. What does Paul do here? The greatest motivation to endure is to stand amazed at the brilliant, amazing, glorious God who is our sovereign king. That's the greatest motivation. Only a healthy dose of the sovereignty of God will truly motivate us to endure to the end. You want to know how to, you you want to be encouraged and motivated to endure to the end until Jesus comes back? You need to have a, a view of God's absolute, brilliant sovereignty. So, verses 15 and 16 give us a doxology, a hymn of praise. Now, this is the second one in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy starts the letter with this. 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's chapter 1. Here we are in chapter 6 at the end. And so Paul gives three descriptions of Jesus, or three descriptions really of God, of our great God. First, God is the blessed and only Savior. I'm sorry, blessed and only Sovereign. Blessed and only. Blessed means God finds delight in and of himself and he shares that joy with his people. And he's the only sovereign, meaning there are no other sovereigns to compete. God has no equals. God has no rivals. Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who is like you? And what's the answer? Nobody. Who is like our great God? There is nobody. He alone is the blessed and only sovereign. And not only that, number two, God is the King of kings and Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. Deuteronomy 10, 17. 
For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Psalm 136.3, Give thanks to the Lord of lords for His steadfast love endures forever. Revelation 17.14, They will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them for He is Lord of lords and King of kings and those with Him are called the chosen and the faithful. And when Jesus comes back on the white horse, Revelation 19, 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, when you take these, two, these first two descriptions together, he is the blessed and only sovereign, and he's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What does this mean? What does it mean? God has full and absolute power and sovereignty over absolutely everything one of my favorite passages of scripture is isaiah 40 go back and read isaiah 40 this week let me just read you verses 12 through 15 again these are rhetorical questions asked that are meant to not be answered with but the only answer is god who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with the span Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who's measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him as counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. You can't even begin to measure what God can do. Daniel 4.35 All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? This God is the absolute and only blessed, sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. And number three, Paul says he is the immortal God of overpowering light. Verse 16. Who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. Psalm 104, 1 and 2. This is how we started our worship service this morning. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Do you remember when Moses wanted to see God's glory? I'm paraphrasing Moses, but Moses basically said, God, I want to see the whole enchilada. And God says, you can't handle the whole enchilada. You can't handle the truth. So what does God do? Exodus 33, 18 through 23. Moses said, please show me your glory. I want to see your glory, God. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. 
And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. No one can see the glory of God and live. The sovereign, majestic, powerful, brilliant, glorious God deserves absolute honor and allegiance. That's why Paul ends here, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now, when you truly ponder the depths of our great God, this can be, if you're honest with yourselves, a little frightening. It should be a little frightening. R.C. Sproul in his classic book, The Holiness of God, said this. God is too great for us. He's too awesome. He makes difficult demands on us. He's the mysterious stranger who threatens our security. In his presence, we quake and tremble. Meeting him personally may be our greatest trauma. And I agree with R.C. Let me say this. Meeting God will be your greatest trauma unless unless there's a mediator, unless there's a go-between, unless there's one who can grant you access to this sovereign God who lives in unapproachable light. And Paul's already addressed it in this letter. 1 Timothy 2, 5-6, through six, For there's one God, this glorious God, this majestic God, this, this sovereign God who dwells in unapproachable light, this God that no one can approach. There's one God, and there's one mediator between this God and Who's the one mediator? The man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The only way to approach this unapproachable God is only through Jesus. So your greatest need is to have your sins forgiven by Jesus alone so that you can have a right relationship with this majestic God. If you die in your sins before Jesus comes back, you will face judgment. You will face this unapproachable God who dwells in unapproachable light, this sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. You will face him on that day, and it will be your greatest trauma. It will not be a day of joy. It will be a day of trauma. Because no one can see this Lord and live. You will be guilty and separated from him for eternity. So if you have not cast yourself at the mercy of Jesus Christ to avoid the trauma of meeting this great God, then would today be the day that you trust in Jesus, ask him to forgive you of your sins, and have the confidence to know that on that day when Jesus comes back, you will face God as your Savior, as your Lord, and not as your judge. Trust in Jesus today. So let me ask the question again. What will motivate you? What will encourage you to stand firm until Jesus comes back? What will truly motivate you? Having a vision of this God, this sovereign, glorious, brilliant, majestic, sovereign God who has all things in his power 
And what should this do? It should encourage us and motivate us to thankfulness and faithfulness and holiness and perseverance and ultimately joy. 1 John 3, 1 through 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet happened, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Are you ready to see Jesus as He truly is? The absolute sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. This should lead you to gratefulness, to obedience, to humility, to spiritual transformation, to obedience. It should lead us to flee sin. It should lead us to pursue righteousness. It should lead us to fight the good fight of faith. It should lead us to hold on tightly to Jesus because He'll never let us go. And it should lead us to obey the totality of His Word as we walk in integrity. Again, the sovereign majesty of God is a solid encouragement for us to stand firm to the end. Because what are we receiving? Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God's a consuming fire. Let us bow. In thankfulness, joy, awe, that our God is a consuming fire. And let us leave this place ready to stand firm to the end. To have endurance as we humbly wait for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming again. He's coming soon. Are you ready for that day are you ready let me ask you to bow your heads Father, our battle with sin can sometimes discourage us. It's a never-ending battle. You call us to fight the good fight of the faith. And we can grow weary in saying no to sin. We can grow tired. We can get our eyes taken off of your majesty, Lord Jesus. 
But we know two things are true. You are coming again in power and glory. And our God is absolutely sovereign over all things. So Lord Jesus, as we wait for your return, may we be motivated to endure. May we be motivated to stand firm. May we be motivated and encouraged to persevere. But we only do that by having our eyes fixed on your absolute glorious, brilliant majesty. That's really the only thing, Lord, that's going to motivate us. So would you encourage us this morning, Lord? Would you give us a heavenly vision? Would you take our eyes off this world? Take our eyes off of sin? Take our eyes off the allurements that come before us and help us to fix our eyes on you? Give us the strength to stand firm. Give us the grace to persevere to the end. Help us to encourage one another in this to know that we're not alone, that we walk together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to encourage each other with the, the good confession of faith, that we are believers, that we believe this, and help us to motivate and encourage each other in confessing this truth. So Jesus, we, we long for your return. We know that when you come back, we will see you as you are. And that brings joy to our hearts. We can't quite... We can't quite fully comprehend it. And my prayer this morning is that every single person in this room would be ready for that day. They'd be ready to meet this King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, we thank you for being our sovereign. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So I will be here and Pastor Dustin after the service. If you need prayer, you need encouragement, maybe.